Hey, this is Jay. Before we start the episode, I wanted to share some really exciting news. Calibra was just named a leader in the 2023 Forrester Wave Report for data governance solutions. If you don't know what the Forrester Wave is, it's essentially a guide for us buyers considering options for software. If you want to get to know Forrester a bit better, go back and check out our recent episodes with Raluca Alexandru and Michelle Getz from Forrester. I love these conversations. We had a total blast. And I can't resist making a plug here either. To learn more about the report, go to Calibra.com slash data download dash Forrester Wave dash DG. And we're going to put all of that in the show notes as well, so that it's easy for you to navigate to them and check out those reports. All right, back to the show. This is the Data Download, your guide to upping your game when it comes to managing and accessing data in your organization. For Calibra, I'm your host, Jay Millich. For some, understanding what artificial intelligence is, is a no-brainer. <laughs> Wait, it, is that a dad joke I just made there? <laughs> but for others, it's been around for a long time. It's still kind of a mystery. What it is and what it isn't. Why should people know more? Why should people even care about it at all? Well, let's dive in and bring someone in here who can tell us what it's all about. I am Sarah Hoffman, VP of AI and Machine Learning Research in Fidelity's Innovation Department, FCAT, or Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Fidelity has a rich legacy of and commitment to innovation. We invest deeply in technology, but we've also always recognized that technology is just a tool, and it's really how we apply it that matters. So FCAT was established you know, way back in 1999 to research and explore emerging technologies and drive innovation across the company. For more than 20 years, FCAT has been a catalyst for breakthrough achievements in research and technology with more than 300 patents. We assess, test, and scale concepts and ideas to advance the needs of both our customers and our employees. We really monitor trends that we think are going to matter most to our customers, looking out specifically five to 10 years ahead to uncover new ideas and opportunities for growth. So ultimately, we prioritize a focus on technology to lay the foundation for the future, one experiment at a time, to build more responsible platforms and products that will help the next generation of investors take on a future that they and we are only beginning to imagine. So I'm part of the research team within FCAT, and I specifically focus on artificial intelligence and where that is headed over the next five years. I want to start this episode off with just quick basics. Why don't we quickly define AI, artificial intelligence? You know, what is it? What isn't it? And then we'll jump into some deeper questions from there. Sure. I'll start off with how I define AI because it's different depending on who you talk to. I usually just use it interchangeably with machine learning, which is the area in AI that's really the game changer here. You know, machine learning is learning from 
data and the answer is the output. And then the machine basically writes the code for you. Um, what's nice about that is if something changes in the world, instead of having to go back and change uh, hundreds of if statements, you can just give that AI system new data and let it redo everything for you. And I think you also asked about what it isn't. So um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> AI is not um, magic. And so in my <laughs> previous role where I was heading up machine learning teams, we used to say that we're going to just call ourselves the genies and forget anything about machine learning because people would come to us <laughs> with no data at all and have any problem they wanted and expect us to solve it with magical machine learning. It needs <laughs> uh, data. Yes. Machine learning needs data. It's just math. It's not magic. Math, not magic. You heard yes. it. <laughs> Excellent. So Sarah, I know your role is research focused on trends in the future and all, but what are some common things that you do see being done with AI in the financial services world? I'll talk about a couple of infidelity. We use AI all over the place. Two relatively new businesses that are just came out of Fidelity Labs, our in-house software incubator and digital studio, are really harnessing the power of AI and improve, to improve workflows. We have Safer, which helps financial services organizations mitigate brand and regulatory risks by using AI and collaboration tools to reduce the friction in content creation, approvals, and filings. And another project, Catchlight, uses proprietary AI power technology to help financial advisors better assess potential leads and tailor pitches to their interests and needs. So AI is used pretty heavily in financial services. Uh, many of us have used chatbots, robo-advisors, even automatic email replies in financial services. One area that's very popular is also personalization, because I think um, nobody wants to be bombarded with um, hundreds of emails about every new product enhancement. So figuring out which customers should be um, emailed about different things that are going on. Also, sentiment analysis on data is really um, used pretty heavily. Being able to look at data, whether it's social media data or even just financial documents and figure out is this a positive thing or is this really bad? Is this negative or neither? And then using that to make um, investment decisions. So if all my emails are just mad, what would the investment, <laughs> so, uh, what, what, uh, what will those decisions be? <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that because when COVID hit, I think the sentiment we all had on so social media was so much more negative that companies that were using sentiment analysis to do investment decisions had to quickly go and change things because otherwise it wow. was just all down. And that's, I guess, an important lesson with machine learning is if something changes in the world, basically your models are all going to break. And COVID was obviously a pretty big change. Yeah, you said it. it's all based on data. So all the data coming in, you know, if the sentiment really did change, but the models weren't prepared for that kind of change, I guess. Exactly. And I wow. mean, we saw it with all, you know, plenty of other things with the pandemic trying to buy, you know, who knew that people would want to make bread when a pandemic hits? So definitely machine learning was not prepared for that either. And guitars. A lot of people bought guitars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And um, gardening also. <laughs> gardening. Okay. It was impossible Excellent. to find gardening supplies. <laughs> so now are, are these models now prepared to handle gardening and bread? Uh, with the assumption that we all decide if there's another pandemic, we're going to go back to bread and gardening. What happens if we all decide we're going to do something else completely wacky? <laughs> So you, you, bring up, you bring up a topic, though, that models are going to be based on the data that's coming into it, and models may not be prepared for certain types of data. So it kind of comes to mind also, another thing, biased data. I know you've gotten into this research before. Tell me what your thoughts are on how to manage or prepare for data ethics concerns when it comes to machine learning and AI. 
What are your thoughts on that subject? Definitely, this is an area I've spent a lot of time focusing on. One example I always like to give to try to explain the issues that could come up with AI to people, because I think everybody, we've all applied to jobs at some point. So this, uh-huh. I like to talk about the example of the big tech company who um, had to shut down their recruiting system a few years ago. It found They found it was biased to women. But um, what was interesting is they, they didn't want it to be biased. They didn't even give it information on gender, but the system learned it on its own. They were trained on the resumes they received over the last however many years, and most of those were male resumes. And so it learned certain verbs that show up a lot in men's resumes, like execute, automatically upgraded the resumes. Also, if you mention something like, oh, I'm president of a woman's chess club, it hadn't seen the word woman. So it just downgraded your resume altogether and ended up having the same biases that we see with humans. And obviously, once they figured it out, they shut it down. Um, that was not, and they did not want to buy a system. But I think that was a, one of the stories over the last few years that was really like an eye-opener to the community that even if you try to be good about things and not give information that could lead to bias, the system can just learn it through other data. And you're asking about ways to overcome this. So I've seen a few different strategies that companies are taking. A lot of companies are setting up AI ethics boards to oversee all parts of AI projects, including the beginning and deciding, should this even be an AI project or should we use some other way of solving it? There's also plenty of fairness and explainability tools, making sure that we're not, you know, accidentally biased that can show us um, what's going on in the systems, especially some of these machine learning systems, which are more black box. Many companies are starting to train people working in AI on topics related to bias and ethics in AI, um, things like what are best ways to label your training data? How do you make sure to be more inclusive during beta testing? And so that's another way that people are trying to um, prepare Many of us went to school, I think, a few years ago in computer science. There was no such thing as an ethics class as part of the computer science curriculum. Right, exactly. Now, there's at least one, I would say, for most computer science degrees. Some have even more than that. But um, it's still you know, not necessarily enough once you start actually working in the field. Um, it's good to have more training on these topics. They're not necessarily intuitive. Can AI or ML help the AI and ML ethics challenge? I think there are a number of ways AI could help from the AI side. I mean, some of these fairness and explainability tools use AI to try to explain what's going on behind the scenes. So that is, you know, AI helping with AI. And there are also other ways, even when we were talking about training courses, there are ways that we could be using AI to enhance some of the ways we give training, even figuring out, you know, who needs to learn about which topics AI could potentially be involved in. And I think we need to incorporate both humans and AI, but the tools are really, I think, the big way where AI can help us find some of these um, issues of bias. You've explained some of the ways AI can be used and your role about doing outside-in research and all of that. Something's come to mind. Computers are writing news articles. Computers are writing stories. Machine learning models are writing music. What's up with that? Is that real? Is it good? How can I tell? So I think it's great. Um, I'm biased in this area. Um, Speaking of bias, but I've been very fascinated. I've been exploring how well these language models are doing at generating text in different ways. I've been focusing on the um, computer coding side to see, you know, it used to be, it will kind of guess the next few words of what you're trying to type when you code. And now it's like, I'll just write the code for you. I also, I'm- Wait, 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 wait. You're saying it, you're saying that models are now writing code. 
for you. So yes, so that's really meta. <laughs> so using some of like GPT three is one of the really um, popular okay. language models today, and there's G Codex, which is built on top of it and is also used by GitHub Copilot. Uh -huh. I'll ask it, you know, oh, I want a Python method to compute average, and it just spits it all out. And you can write in your own natural language and get back code. And some of it is more could be more complex. It doesn't have to only be simple things. And it's I wouldn't say it's perfect. AI is never perfect. It's not magic, again. But um, some of it is really, really good. And it's, I think, a great way for people who are you know, getting started with coding as a new way of learning and also just as a way to speed up the process of coding, even if you are a really um, good developer. Right. So we're used to suggestions. In a search engine, if you're typing in words, it will try to complete those words for you. Or if you're writing an email, it will try to complete those words for you. That's machine learning doing natural language processing, right? And yes. what, what you're saying is it's proactively doing the writing for you before you start typing. <laughs> and right, is that kind of what you're saying? And it's doing that with code. And yeah, and the way it's able to do this is if you're familiar with code, most, you know, we've you have to put comments on top of your code. Not that everybody does. The nice thing about if you have comments in your code is, and there's tons of, also tons and tons of code on GitHub that it can learn from publicly available code, oh. that this is a great way, other than the fact that, you know, people have usually choose to write code that's friendly to the human, the human to understand by the names of the methods being more self-explanatory and the names of variables being self-explanatory. There's also often comments telling you what the code is doing. These tools could learn from some of this and try to combine things and to give you the code that you want. You could start typing the code and then get all the code um, back, but you could also just start typing a comment and get all the code back too. And the comment could be in your own language. That's pretty wild. It's amazing. Yeah, it's basically the same exact thing that you think of when you start typing in your Gmail, except that it's, it's a lot more and it's code and not just general text. What are some of the other ways that you're seeing, or maybe even your own organization is using these kinds of capabilities to do writing? So I've explored it. So I, you know, my background is, you know, coding and is managing AI from the production side. Now my job is really, you know, giving talks, writing research papers on where AI is headed. So writing papers is very new to me. So I have explored these tools to see, you know, how well does it help with my writing process? And in some ways, I actually find it to be very valuable. Um, if you're somebody like me who struggles with the title <laughs> of like, what should I call this thing? I wrote this great thing and I have no idea what to call it. You kind of seed it with some information and it can give you some suggestions for titles. The thing you don't want to use the tool for is anything factual, because the way these tools learn is they're learning from data that was anywhere on the internet, and it's making things up, and it's not fact-checking to make sure it's giving you um, correct information. So I actually was exploring it to see if it could give me some interesting partnership ideas out of curiosity. And I started talking about Fidelity and younger investors. And it was said, oh, yeah, Fidelity just partnered with My Little Pony, which is not true, by the way, for those of you listening. <laughs> So don't trust it. That's the only problem. It's great, though, for like just brainstorming and thinking and thinking about things differently and how to phrase things, but definitely not factually. I was actually recently speaking with Ben Syverson from IDEO, who used GPT-3 for brainstorming purposes. He wanted to was working on a project to figure out how to help people save money and asked GPT-3 for ideas and got suggestions that were, you know, not necessarily the most brilliant thing in the entire world, but as part of a brainstorming process, they were really, really good suggestions to get a good discussion going to actually come up with a final product on maybe an idea of what actually could be done. Oh, that's pretty cool. 
Normally, with our guests, I ask a final question about predicting the future on whatever the subject is that we're talking about. But your whole gig is about predicting the future. And AI, ML, is about predicting the future. So why don't we actually make that a thread? You're seeing trends and your research is leading you toward having some ideas on what's going to come down the line in the future of AI and ML. So let's talk a little bit about what's on your mind there. We talked a lot about automatically writing code. And so I was researching this topic and trying out these tools and realizing how good they are, much better than I anticipated. And so we decided to see, you know, how well would it work for people to, in our company, to solve their own business pain points. And so we hosted a no-code challenge where the only rule was you were not allowed to code. <laughs> and they spent a week um, trying no-code tools to solve some of their problems. And at the end of the week, um, we actually had se over 700 employees participate, which was the interest was so much more than I could have expected in something like this. And the demos were amazing. And it was really great to see so much interest. And some of these projects are actually like now being looked at to turn into something bigger. And so that really also did tell me like the field of no code, low code is just so much better than we've seen a few years ago. And it's really, really improving and their tools are getting much more usable that somebody who hadn't looked at a tool a week before could pick it up and, okay, maybe it's not a full-scale product, but create a proof of concept in a week with it is um, pretty amazing. 700 people, you said? Yeah, more than 700. More than that? That's fantastic. Were they mostly engineers trying to do things without coding or were they mostly non-engineers trying to get into the game or what was the demographic? Yeah, that's a great question. It was actually um, a mix. But and what was amazing about that is, so we partnered with our women in technology group to run this because I was also trying to reach out to different types of people that maybe usually participate in these types of hackathons. And what was, people, you know, went over afterwards and said, this it was so nice to see because, you know, some, there was a woman who went over to the head of this women in technology group and said, you know, we, I have all these ideas and I see these hackathons and I always want to participate, but I don't know how to code. So I just keep my ideas to myself. Mm. And now I finally felt like there was a way for me to share, you know, and create how a proof awesome. of concept. And um, so I think it's also a really nice way to just, you know, we're talking about opening innovation with AI tools and opening brainstorming with AI tools, but democratize innovation in terms of also the humans that are working on innovation and able to share their ideas to open it to pretty much everybody. There's like big implications to that, right? Within an organization, but also societal, if I could be so bold. What did you say? You said it democratizes innovation. Exactly. Yeah. I love that phrase. What a great phrase. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> uh, democratizes in no code using ML democratizes innovation is, is what I'm hearing you say. And I think that the implication there is, is pretty impactful. Do you see that becoming something broader than just any given company can do that internally? Do you see anything broader that might happen in the education space or otherwise? Because you're connecting a bunch of interesting dots, even within Fidelity, your women in code organization, I think you called it. Um, did I get that right? Women in technology. Women in technology, same, sorry. Same uh, uh, <laughs> right? So you're connecting a bunch of cool dots there. Um, what are the dots to connect outside of there? 
Yeah. So I actually am, you know, very interested in seeing what happens with education as these tools have been improving, even just the coding becoming easier with use. use also, some of these tools that we've been discussing, like GPT-3, you could give it code and it'll write you step-by-step instructions on what the code is doing. Hmm. Um, and what I like about that is speaking of democratizing things is, you know, not everybody learns well from a classroom you know, or from reading a book. We all have different ways we learn well. And to me, this is another way for people who don't know how to code or don't know how to code well to learn. And you could just give it code and ask it, you know, explain this code to me. And it's just another tool for learning. Um, You can also get it to translate from one programming language to another. So if you're learning a new programming language, Uh I also want to speak to um, outside of coding and education. Yeah. Um, So I have a third grade twins and they don't understand anything that I do. (laughs) 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 And my husband's a psychologist. So they're always talking to him about his work because it's much easier for them to understand him helping people with their fears than me um, talking about artificial intelligence and where it's headed. Um, but So I started, I tried something. I took GPT-3 and I said, take some of my papers, at least parts of it, and, you know, explain this to a second grader, um, explain this to a young child. And I got back, you know, different paragraphs and I really? was like, okay, kids, you're my guinea pigs right now. Um, could you understand what this is saying? And surprisingly, so my son was actually like, you know, explain He was able to understand it. He was asking follow-up questions. And I, nice. And what was amazing to me is also, I don't want to compare any of us to um, kids, but but like sometimes I read an academic paper and I get like a little bit lost in it sometimes. And like, there's like all this jargon. And so to me also, in terms of education, I do think there's something here about simplifying text into way easier, less jargonful um, writing that anybody can understand. Oh, that's such a good point. Right. We could all be third graders. Exactly. Like, I mean, I would much rather read some of these things catered to a third grader than um, to some assuming somebody who has all this extra knowledge. That's fascinating. Oh, that's really cool. One other topic not related to this, but that I think is just interesting, because we we were speaking earlier about AI and bias, and Uh I've been seeing a lot of tools kind of flipping things, taking AI and helping people be more inclusive. So I think that's a nice counterpoint to um, some of the discussion going on with AI. And sometimes before some of my talks, I'll go to PowerPoint and you can get, you know, rehearse and it'll give you feedback on, you know, if your phrases that you're using as you're speaking are inclusive, could they hurt someone, cause harm? And sometimes it's a nice way to just get that extra, you know, suggestions on things you might not think about because it's really hard to think about everything. There are plenty of tools that do that with writing also. And so I do think it's very interesting that there are so many ways that we could use tools like AI to be more inclusive. So when I think about like that resume example of the word woman's automatically downgrading a resume, that was AI bias. But maybe there are humans that have the same bias and don't necessarily know it. So if I'm looking at a resume and I know OAI might negatively flag that because of the word women's, I can start thinking about it and saying, hey, do I do the same thing? Another recent example or more recent example, there was um, a video recruiting tool that assumed you are more conscientious if you have a bookshelf behind you. And um, you have a bookshelf behind you. And I always want to drag my bookshelf over. There's probably one on the the other side there for for you. (laughs) I don't believe you. No, No, on your side. (laughs) 
Oh, on my side there is. Yeah. No, you, have, you have bookshelves. I know you have. I'm I sure know, you I have bookshelves. Like, I need to change my angle when I saw that. I'm like, so everybody could You're see You're a researcher. Smart. You have bookshelves. I'm sure you do. What was interesting about this is the fact that we found out, okay, AI has this bias that it has. But it made me think, you know, do I have that bias? Like, maybe I do. Like, if I'm talking to you now and I saw your bookshelf with all these intellectual books behind you, maybe I'll assume, oh, you know, this person must be really smart. You must, you know, you could have just ordered them on Amazon and never read them. But um, we make assumptions because we're human. That's how I roll. <laughs> and so it made me think about if we could know all, you know, these AI tools are showing us the AI bias, maybe we can start thinking about it for ourselves and think about, do we have this bias? And I think that's another way that AI could help us be more inclusive. What haven't we touched on here that we, that we should? What else is on your mind? So one other thing I would mention, we were talking earlier about what companies are doing to try to help with the topic of AI bias. I will say that one thing that I wish more companies were doing is trying to get more diversity into the field of AI, because I do think that it's really hard for people who are all you know more similar to figure out the possible issues that could happen to everybody. And so the more diversity we could bring into the field, I think the easier it will be to find um, potential issues. Somebody can be like, okay, hey, that would not work for somebody like me. So that's, I guess I would add to that discussion is if the more we could bring in more diversity into technology and AI, that would really be a game changer. Here. Well, right. So maybe you already have the answer and that's your no code challenge. Exactly. Yeah. that <laughs> For the populace in general, right? Maybe we already have the answer to that and we find ways to get tools like that into hackathons and schools, right? Oh, yeah. And one very interesting thing that I should mention is related to that. So we had one team actually that was children of Fidelity employees. They wanted to participate. They were 12. And it was actually amazing that they were able to take a no-code tool, use it, and create a an application that was something that they would want to see in for financial services. Yeah. I'm like, wow, this could even work for 12 year olds. Like this could work for, you know, for anybody. And so I do think that this is an amazing way to get more people part of this um, discussion. I think I thought of a question because this interview is really special. We, we, we're spending the whole time talking about the future, trends in the future. And that's normally my final question. So I have a new final question just for you. And that final question is, what did you predict that didn't come true? I will talk about something that didn't come true at the time that I predicted it. I re was researching the topic of future of work, and this one goes back to 2018, maybe. And I told everyone that by 2025, we need to be prepared for this more flexible, you know, work environment. And I basically <laughs> described everything that started happening, you know, since 2020. <laughs> and, you know, people will just show up from anywhere they want and they'll uh -huh. be able, you know, working. And, and I went on and on and on with all these things we need to do. And I was right and I was wrong. <laughs> so that's um, everything I said was correct. It just happened way earlier than I expected. And I think before anybody was prepared for it. Your prediction was ahead of its time. Well done. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I, I called it Associate Experience 2025. I was like, this is what we need to prepare for our employees come 2025. Um, even my title <laughs> this year. So I was wrong and right. <laughs> So much to digest. Artificial intelligence is a ginormous subject, and we covered quite a lot. 
One thing we confirmed today is that AI is not going to help my Zoom backgrounds. <laughs> I got no bookshelves. Anyway, let's boil down some key things. Here's what stuck with me. First, what is artificial intelligence and what isn't it? Well, it's math, not magic. To frame the thinking, let's use the terms artificial intelligence and machine learning interchangeably. Machine learning is code that learns from data, and then it produces an answer as output. To be effective at producing those answers and making reasonably accurate predictions, ML needs data, and a lot of it. And it takes time and effort to collect it and prepare it to use in a machine learning model. Second, AI is everywhere. We talked at length in our data ethics episode about data bias and how this impacts everyone on the planet in so much of what we do, as consumers, as professionals, and more. AI is partly how financial institutions make investment decisions and recommendations. Think about those mutual funds in the 401k plan. Of course, other examples, like recommendations made to you when you're doing online shopping, you're about to check out your shopping cart and get presented with other things that you might want to buy, well, that might part is driven heavily by machine learning. Third, my favorite thing about this episode was learning how AI democratizes innovation. It's pretty meta, but AI has come such a long way that it's being used to generate code. We joked a bit about how AI has evolved from the ability to read text, make determinations and predictions, to now being able to write text. That can be in the form of writing stories and summaries, news articles, even music. Further, AI can write code that's then used in software, assisting in learning how to program, accelerating actual development and more. It's democratizing because it brings people into the tech. It's inspiring people, young people, maybe folks that wouldn't otherwise be taught or encouraged to pursue these things. It's so promising for STEM education opportunities and it'll be fun to watch as it evolves. Speaking of evolution, I feel like I'm getting hang of this podcast thing. This is our 10th episode of the Data Download and it marks an important milestone for us. I'll tell you one thing, I've learned a ton so far and I hope you have too. For Calibra, this is the Data Download. I'm your host, Jay Millichair, and I'll see you next time. Even more insight into managing your data? Visit Calibra.com slash podcast for additional resources on the topics covered in our show. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss a new episode. And a five-star review certainly doesn't hurt our chances with the algorithm. It's all about the algorithm, isn't it, folks? It's a great way to help us reach new listeners, and we truly do appreciate your support. The Data Download is a production of Calibra in collaboration with Stories Bureau.